Today's video is going to be about compass pathways. You really can't talk about psychedelic stocks without mentioning compass pathways. They're the largest publicly traded shroom stock by market cap. They've attracted the attention of major investors like Peter Thiel. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that if someone really only knows one psychedelic stock, some average investor has only just heard of one psychedelic stock, it's probably Compass Pathways. And that's going to be the focus of today's video. We're going to dig into this company. We're going to look at their team. We're going to try and figure out what the deal is with Peter Thiel, like what's his involvement like. We're going to talk about some of their patent scandals that have come up in articles by Vice News recently. And we're going to talk about how investors should maybe react to those patent scandals. We're going to talk about their pipeline and ultimately, we're going to try and answer the question as investors, like, is this a stock that we should hold or not? Um, so we're going to get into that in a second. But first, I just have to plug a few things. First of all, if you don't like watching my face talk, I do upload the audio of these videos to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. The link to all of those podcasts and audio versions of this video will be pasted below in the video description. So you can go listen to those instead of watch the video if you want to. Also, I know my videos can sometimes be very long and kind of rambly. And so I've started a clips channel, which is where I'll maybe take, you know, some of the more interesting segments of these longer videos and just clip out, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes of some of the cool shit and just put that on the clips channel. So if you want to like send an interesting part to your friends, or maybe you just don't really have the patience to watch the whole video, you can go check out the clips channel and see what some of the highlights of these long form full episodes are. So I'll make sure to have the link to the clips channel below. And if you subscribe to that clips channel, I would really appreciate it. I'm trying to build it up to hundred subscribers so I can get a private URL. Um, and one last thing, you know, before we get into Compass Pathways, I have to say, just like I say in every single video, this is not financial advice. Um, you shouldn't buy, sell, or make any sort of trading or investing decision based solely on what I say in this video. You should only make those decisions because you've done your own research and you've decided what is the best move for you. And if you don't know how to do your own research, then get yourself hooked up with a financial advisor that has your best interests at heart. I also just want to mention full disclosure, I do own shares in Compass Pathways, just like I own shares in many other psychedelic companies, including Mind Medicine, Numinous Wellness, Cybin, and Field Trip Health, and a few others. All of my positions in psychedelic stocks are long positions. There are no short positions in any psychedelic stocks or other stocks that I own for that matter. Most of my investing is just very boring, long index funds. I'm not into fancy shorting or any of that. So just a full disclosure on my position so you know where I'm coming from when you watch this video. Okay. So with that said, all the housekeeping out of the way, let's get into Compass Pathways. Now, if you guys have watched any of my other videos, you know that the first thing I like to talk about when analyzing any company is the team. And that's what we're going to do with Compass Pathways. We're going to look at the team. Um, but first, I just want to sort of read the backstory of Compass. This is taken from their management's discussion and analysis in their most recent SEC filing. Um, if you're not familiar with management's discussion and analysis, that is a section of, you know, annual reports that companies have to file with the SEC. And um, unlike, you know, a company's website or a press release where they're only required to, you know, talk about the nice things, they can just kind of say whatever they want as long as it's true. The management's discussion and analysis sort of requires them to go into more detail to disclose all the risks. So if you're like new to, you know, analyzing stocks, I highly recommend sort of ignore what's on the company's website and try to get a hold of the management's discussion and analysis section from their filings because you will get a much more complete picture of the company by reading that than by reading articles about them or just by reading their website. So this is the history of Compass Pathways according to the management's discussion and analysis, which you can go and find on the SEC's website or on Compass Pathways website under their investor section. Here it is. In 2015, the Compass Trust Limited, 
a nonprofit private limited company incorporated in England and Wales, was incorporated by two of our co-founders, George Goldsmith and Ekaterina Malice. I, I don't even know how to pronounce her last name. Malik Veskia. Very, very, very Russian name. Um, what they don't say in this is that um, George and Ekaterina, our husband and wife, not that there's a problem with that, although I do think that, you know, those husband and wife founder CEO power couples are always a little bit perplexing to me. Um, it was founded by George and Ekaterina, and its purpose was to support the research and development of psilocybin therapy for end-of-life anxiety. In June 2016, Mr. Goldsmith and Dr. Ekaterina formed Compass Pathways, a for-profit limited company incorporated in England and Wales to manufacture psilocybin for the research. So they started a nonprofit whose goal was to, you know, bring psilocybin research into the, you know, the public light. And then they started a for-profit company that was going to manufacture the psilocybin that that nonprofit was going to use in their studies. But later in 2016, following discussion with regulators and health technology assessment agencies, Mr. Goldsmith and Dr. E I keep calling her Dr. Ekaterina because I can't pronounce her last name. It should be her last name, but I don't want to keep embarrassing myself by saying the wrong name. So um, like they, they began considering the development of psilocybin therapy for treatment-resistant depression, given the significant unmet need in this area. In 2017, Compass Pathways Technologies Limited was renamed Compass Pathways Limited and began to carry out clinical trials and funding activities. And the Compass Trust, which was the nonprofit, was dissolved. So they have sort of an interesting backstory, right? They started this nonprofit, then they started a for-profit that was supposed to manufacture the psilocybin that the nonprofit was going to research. And then they just decided that they were going to close the nonprofit and just go full on for-profit. And I, I did some reading about this, like why did they decide to do it that way? And my understanding is that their goal actually was always to be for um, nonprofit. Sorry, their goal was always to be nonprofit. But um, the nonprofit tried to buy some psilocybin from another research company and they were basically denied. So they realized they had to manufacture their own. And that is why they started the for-profit company. And then both of these founders, they, they were, you know, well-to-do, but they weren't like mega rich. And so they, they couldn't really fund this nonprofit themselves. And I think they had kind of a hard time raising money. And so they decided that it would be easier for them to raise money if they went the public route or the for-profit the for route. And they started um, Compass Pathways for-profit and dissolved the nonprofit. So even though it is kind of like a weird backstory, like going from nonprofit to for-profit, I don't think there's anything like to be super concerned about there. You know, you might as well just consider them a for-profit company that has always been a for-profit company. Um, but let's get into the backgrounds of these team members here. So we have we have Ekaterina and we have George. And remember, they're husband and wife. They're um, George is the CEO and Ekaterina is the chief innovation officer. And both of them are obviously co-founders. Now, Ekaterina, she has a, she has a pretty good background. She was an instructor at Mount Sinai and a research professor at City University of New York. Um, outside of her faculty positions at these schools, she worked in global health and medical philanthropy, and her focus is on maternal and child health. So, you know, I've, I've kind of criticized some of the founders of these other companies like Numinous Wellness and Mind Medicine because they don't really have like pharmaceutical or medical medical backgrounds. But here we have Ekaterina, Dr. Ekaterina, and you know she, she's a doctor and she's been a research professor and an instructor. And she's, you know, had some like real medical experience. Now, granted, not in psychedelic research, but you know, it's it's better than some of the backgrounds of some of these other psychedelic companies' CEOs or co-founders rather. 
Um, and then let's talk about her husband, George. Now, George, he had, his background is not as good as Ekaterina's. He was kind of like a consulting type guy. You know, he worked for McKinsey. He worked at something called the inner, the human interface group. Um, no, no real like biotech experience. Although his one thing in his background that is related to what Compass does is that I believe his undergrad and his master's degrees were in like, he did some kind of dual major in like computer science and psychology. So I guess that's maybe sort of related, but he, he is, you know, potentially good CEO material because he does come from that consulting background. And, you know, I'd imagine that being married to a doctor for your whole life probably gives you at least like some familiarity with the, uh, with the, with the clinical process. Now, before we move on to looking at the other the backgrounds of other founders, I think one thing that I want to point out about these two that I really like is that they each own 14% of the company. And this is today after, you know, all their capital raises and their IPOs and their American depository receipt listings, they still own 14% each, collectively 28%, almost one third of the company. You contrast that with someone like JR from MindMed, who owns, I believe, about 2%, and Peyton Nyquist from Numi, he owns about 5%. These people own much more of their company. And, you know, I understand that sometimes founders have to give up control in order to raise money, but I really like to see founders hold on to as much equity as possible. I think it's a good sign. I don't have any like hard data on this, but I feel like it's a good thing to see founders that have a significant, um, you know, chunk of control of their company. It means that they're motivated to really see it through to the end. If you only own like a, you know, one or 2%, like sure, if the company gets really big, you could make out like a bandit, but you, you just... I think it's a lot easier to be motivated and to feel like it's still your baby and something you still want to nurture and grow if you own a large chunk. So I appreciate the fact that they own so much. I also think it sort of speaks well. Uh, uh, it, it, it looks good because it means that they were able to raise money on favorable terms that didn't require them to give up so much control. And you know, maybe that means that their investors are, were just stupid, which I don't think is the case. I think it's more likely that it means that the investors you know, really believed in them and really thought that they were doing something good. And so the investors were willing to accept a smaller percentage of equity in the company in exchange for their investments. So the fact that George and Ekaterina collectively own about one third of the company, I think is a very, very good sign. Um, but you know, I, I looked into the rest of the backgrounds on these people. And I know when I've talked about Mind Meta Numi, I like spent a lot of time on the backgrounds of the founders and I, I honestly couldn't really find anything like super negative about Ekaterina or George. Um, they both seem like, you know, fine people, no like major scandals in their history as far as I can tell. Um, but one thing that you will notice about them is that I didn't mention anything about like a personal psychedelic experience that either of them have had. And when you talk about JR from MindMed or you talk about Peyton from Numi, who were kind of the other two big players in this space, both JR and Peyton, they have like these very, very emotional, powerful testimonies to the power of psychedelics. Like Peyton was a guy who was almost about to, you know, kill himself. He was like getting hospitalized 10 times in one year and he finally did ayahuasca and it changed his life. And JR was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict and he finally, you know, did some psilocybin and it changed his life and changed the course of his life. These, these people, Ekaterina and George, they don't have a story like that, at least as far as I can tell. And um, so you got to wonder, like, why did they decide to start this psilocybin thing here, right? And this is where we have to talk about Lars Christian Wild. He's their chief business officer. And he is the other co-founder. So I think there were three co-founders. He's the third. And he is the guy who had the psilocybin experience. Now, I will say that when you compare his testimony to that of J.R. or Peyton from, um, from Numi, 
his his story of psilocybin saving his life is not nearly as dramatic. It may be because he's like a German guy and you know he's just not showing as much emotion, but his his testimony can kind of be told in, you know, about five sentences. It's he had a friend who died and that gave him a lot of anxiety. One of the investors at his previous company um, told him about psilocybin. He took the psilocybin, five dried grams in a dark room, the old Terrence McKenna prescription. And his anxiety was cured forever. And, you know, that's basically it. He doesn't talk about it too much, but that's the backstory. And that's what got him excited about psychedelics. And somehow he ended up joining forces with George and E. Katarina, and they decided to start Compass. Now, the nice thing about Lars Christian Wilde is that, you know, he did have this psychedelic experience that really sort of changed his life and motivated him to get this thing going. But besides that, um, you know, he doesn't really have like a great clinical background either. His, his prior experience is that He's the founder slash CEO of Spring Lane, which is a seller, manufacturer, and retailer of European kitchen and barbecue supplies. So definitely not like, you know, the best background for the co-founder slash chief business officer of a psychedelic pharmaceutical company. But at least I guess he was an entrepreneur and that's a good thing. And, you know, running companies, I guess there's similarities no matter what company you're running. But, you know, out of all three of these people, Ekaterina is a medical doctor and that's good, but we haven't seen any real solid like pharma backgrounds in any of these people. But the good thing is, is that as we look through the rest of the team, I my, my belief is that when you look at the like CFO, the um, chief legal counsel positions that are at Compass Pathways, and you compare those executive positions to the people that hold the executive positions at companies like Numi and MindMed, I think that um, Compass's team really sort of blows these other companies out of the water. So for example, let's just talk about the CFO. You look at the CFO of Numi, for example, and he's a guy, a fine guy, but his previous experience was he was an investment banker that dealt with like Canadian resource exploration and mining companies. And he was the CFO of some sort of like Canadian gold mining company. Now that's all great, but you compare that with Compass's CFO, this gentleman named Pierce Morgan, and he's basically had a very long career of being the CFO of pharma companies, some of which have actually exited and gone public and been acquired. So this dude has a track record of doing what Compass needs to do, and I think that's good. Um, we can look at other people on their team. Um, Marco Mollwinkle, probably pronouncing that wrong, he's the chief commercial officer of Compass. Not really sure what chief commercial officer does, but um, prior to working at Compass, he had like a 20-year career in medicine. He worked at WebMD, he worked at Johnson & Johnson, and he's sort of been an outspoken advocate for um, holistic care. You can find articles written by him that date back to like the early 2010s where he's talking about pharmaceutical companies need to stop focusing on just the drug and they need to look more at, you know, the whole therapy and the situation and the life change around the drug. And this is exactly what Compass and all the other companies that are trying to bring psychedelic assisted therapy to market are doing. So this is a guy who is a fantastic asset to the team. And finally... You guys may have heard about Compass's big patent scandals, right? They're trying to like patent all sorts of crazy things and a lot of people are very upset. We're going to get into that later. But if you wonder where that's coming from, you should look at their chief legal officer. His name is Nate Paulson. And he has a very cool background. He was a chemistry undergrad and he supposedly, while an undergrad, worked with Dr. Shulgin. And if you don't know who Dr. Shulgin is and you're interested in psychedelics, I would say, pause this video, Google Dr. Shulgin. Um, I'm not going to say anymore. It's a very fun rabbit hole to go down if you're into psychedelics. Um, Google Shulgin and Pakal. Um, 
So he worked with Shulgin while he was an undergrad. He then was a practicing chemist that worked for various pharmaceutical companies for, I believe, you know, at least a decade. Then he decided to change paths. He went to law school and he became like a pharmaceutical patent clerk. And this guy has had a whole career of, you know, filing patents, figuring out like ways to patent chemical processes, pharmaceutical drugs, and get them protected. So this is the brains behind all of Compass Pathways, um, you know, patent situations that we're hearing about in the news. And I know a lot of people don't like what they're doing, but you sort of have to admit that, you know, maybe from a business perspective, it kind of makes sense. And so they have the right guy on their team to do this. Um, I'm not sure that Numi and MindMed have legal counsel that's on the same level as this guy. So I think that overall, like they're team here is, you know, a pretty good competitive advantage. Um, and finally, you can't really talk about the people that are associated with Compass Pathways without talking about Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel, um, I don't even know if I need to introduce Peter Thiel. Most people know who he is. He's a very famous investor. He was the first guy to invest in Facebook. He started PayPal. He's behind Palantir. He's got like a ton of venture capital funds. If you don't know who Peter Thiel is, you know, Google him. There's millions of things to read about this guy. Um, and Peter Thiel was an early investor in Compass Pathways. I believe that to this date, he still owns about six and a half percent when you combine his ownership, his personal ownership, and the investments that were made by his venture capital fund, the Founders Fund. Um, now, Peter Thiel is sort of a divisive figure. You know, a lot of people think that he's a bad guy. He as a very vocal, like, Republican. He uh, spoke at, was it CPAC, I believe, in the, during, in the 2016 election. He gave, like, a very big speech that was very pro-Trump and very pro-Republican Party. Um, and, you know, he's behind companies like Palantir, which a lot of people don't really like. They think that they're unethical. And so it's like this guy is, um, you know, he's behind Palantir. He's also behind Compass Pathways, a psychedelic company. And that sort of freaks a lot of people out. But I think the truth is, is that, you know, Teal, say what you want about him. He only owns like 5% of the company. The founders own much more. And I think it's probably fair to say that Teal is not like sitting here calling the shots of this company. So I don't know how active Peter Teal's involvement is. I'm sure he you know, is in communication with the founders on some level, but I don't think it's, you, you read a lot of articles about Teal and about how he's sort of like this puppet master, you know, kind of controlling the company, you know, making them do things. And I just don't think any of that's true. I think that Teal is invested in hundreds of companies and he, the idea that he has time to really focus on any one of them specifically is probably just not very realistic. What I will say about Teal though, is that if you read his book, which is called Zero to One. And if you watch any videos of him talking, you will quickly figure out that one of Teal's big things that he looks for when he's investing in a company or, the, or when he's starting a company is that he does not believe in competition. He thinks that the best companies are monopolies. And of course, they don't want you to know that they're monopolies. They try to hide that fact. But in truth, if you look behind every successful company, according to Teal, every successful company is a monopoly. And he only wants to be involved with a company that has the potential to be a true monopoly. And I think that when you think about the fact that, you know, that's Peter Thiel's business philosophy and he invested in Compass Pathways, that must mean that he thinks that Compass Pathways has at least some chance of being, you know, the psychedelic monopoly player. And when you read about these like patent scandals that Compass is involved with, it's like, it, it kind of all just makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, well, Peter Thiel, his entire philosophy is like start a monopoly. And so obviously they're doing these things. They want to start a monopoly. It makes sense. And so I, I just, 
while I don't think that Peter Thiel is you know, actually controlling the everyday moves of the company, I think that philosophy of trying to build a monopoly is, is, must be present within Compass in at least some capacity. Otherwise, Peter Thiel would not have invested in this company. Um, all, and one more side note about Thiel is that Thiel is also a large investor in a company called Atai Life Sciences. Atai Life Sciences is sort of like a investment group that invests only in psychedelic companies. And Atai Life Sciences, which is invested in by Peter Thiel, is a large investor in Compass. So Peter Thiel owns investments in Compass both through his personal investments and then sort of like in a second degree fashion by his investments in Atai Life Sciences, which I believe, if I remember correctly, Atai owns something like 20% of Compass Pathways. So Peter Thiel is involved. There are lots of, you know, big heavy hitter private investors involved. Um, And I just think everyone should be aware of that. But now let's start talking about their strategy. Like, what is Compass actually doing? Now, if you've watched any of my other videos about Numi or MindMed, you know that I've kind of given Numi and MindMed some shit for being what I call unfocused. I think that, you know, MindMed, it's good that they have like a lot of things in the pipeline, but it's like maybe there's too many things in the pipeline. And then Numi is this really small company that when I made the video only had like 30 million in cash, and yet they were trying to operate clinics, testing facilities, manufacturing, and clinical research. And I said in both of those videos that I want to see companies focus. I want to see companies find that one thing that they're good at, and I want to see them relentlessly execute on that thing. And once they've proven themselves, then it's okay if they want to, you know, branch out and expand. But when people are like too distracted and unfocused at the beginning, I think that's bad. And when I look at Compass Pathways, whether I like them or not, one thing that I cannot argue with is that they are a company that is really like taking that philosophy to heart. They found a thing that they are good at, and they are doing it well, and they are not even looking outside of the lane that they're in. I mean, they have the blinders on. They are focused with almost 100% intensity on psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression. That's their thing. Now, they do talk sometimes in you know their meetings and their earnings calls about how in the future they will expand into other things, but for now, pretty much everything that they do is centered around getting psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression approved by the FDA and deployed into the United States market. That's it. Um, Now, you know, good things can happen when you are singularly focused on a goal and you, you know, put all of your resources into it. Good things can happen. And one of the good things that can happen and that has has happened for Compass is that their psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression has been issued FDA breakthrough therapy. And there, I'm going to get into what FDA breakthrough therapy means, but I just want to talk a little bit about this idea of like treatment-resistant depression and why is this such a good idea? Like, why did they choose treatment-resistant depression instead of any other disorder? Why not anxiety? Why not regular depression? Well, I think the genius of choosing treatment-resistant depression is that treatment-resistant depression, its definition is a depressive disorder that at least two other treatments have not been able to solve. So sort of like by definition, there is no treatment for treatment-resistant depression. Like once the depression has been treated, it is no longer. And when you get a population of people that are suffering from treatment-resistant depression, they've already tried at least two other things. So probably an SSRI, some talk therapy, maybe Wellbutrin or something. And so the probability, and, and the FDA, keep, keep in mind, the FDA, they don't just approve any drug that like works. They approve drugs that work better than the existing treatment. 
And treatment-resistant depression, you know, it says it right there in the name. It's like nothing can treat it. And so there is no existing treatment really for treatment-resistant depression. So if you can show that there is a drug that gives anybody any benefit after they've at least tried two other treatment options that have not worked, you can sort of consider that drug a success. And so I think this makes a lot of sense. It's like a very, it's, it's a smaller market, but it's probably easier to show that you can treat treatment-resistant depression than to show that you can treat regular depression or, you know, general, I think it's major depressive disorder, better than, you know, the existing treatments. People may debate whether or not psilocybin treats major depressive disorder better than an SSRI, but treatment-resistant depression, which SSRI may not work for, it's like, well, psilocybin did something, so it, it probably worked, and so we can issue an approval for it. And I think that that is why the FDA has issued breakthrough therapy designation to Compass Pathways psilocybin-assisted therapy. Now, what exactly is FDA breakthrough designation? Um, you know, lots of people talk about it. Most people probably don't know what it is. I'm just going to read the definition here from the FDA's website. So FDA breakthrough therapy designation, the FDA breakthrough therapy is a process that is designed to expedite the development and review of drugs, which may demonstrate substantial improvement over available therapies. Okay. Um, it also gives them um, access to the FDA fast track designation, which means that they get more frequent meetings with the FDA to discuss the drug's development plan and ensure collection of appropriate data needed to support drug approval. It gives them more frequent written communication from the FDA about such things as the design of the proposed clinical trials and use of the biomarkers. And it also gives them eligibility for accelerated approval and priority review, assuming that all you know relevant criteria are met. So overall, this breakthrough therapy designation is a very, very good thing. And the truth is, is that there is no other for-profit company that has received breakthrough designation for any psilocybin-assisted therapy. So there are four breakthrough designations that have been issued for psychedelics. I'm going to read through them. So USONA, which is a nonprofit that is researching psilocybin for major depressive disorder, they've gotten FDA breakthrough therapy. MAPS, who I'm sure everyone knows about, they're researching MDMA for post-traumatic stress. That has received FDA breakthrough therapy designation. Johnson & Johnson and their ketamine product has received it. And Janssen with their e-ketamine product has received it. But those are the only four FDA breakthrough therapy designations that have been issued to any psychedelic drug. And as you'll notice there, there's no for-profit company that received it for a psilocybin product. So really, Compass Pathways has the upper hand here. Um, they are most likely to get approval for this psilocybin product before any other company gets approval for a psilocybin product, or I would say an LSD product for that matter. You know, MindMed is very heavy into LSD, but there have been no breakthrough designations issued for LSD. Um, but, you know, to caveat that, it's like, this is obviously a good thing, but even if you read the management's discussion and analysis from Compass Pathways, they do admit, they talk about this FDA um, breakthrough therapy and how great it is, but then they go on to say, quote, Breakthrough therapy designation for COMP360 and any future therapeutic candidates may not result in a faster development process review or approval compared to drugs considered for approval under non-expedited FDA re review processes and does not assume ultimate approval by the FDA. In addition, even though COMP360 has been designated as a breakthrough therapy, the FDA may later decide that it or any future therapeutic candidates that are designated by FDA as breakthrough therapies no longer meet the conditions for qualification. So the point is, is that 
It's great that they have it now, but in the end, the FDA giveth and the FDA taketh away. You know, they can, re they can, re um, <laughs> they can take back this designation at any time. And, um, it's not a guarantee that it will be approved, right? It increases the probability that it will happen, but it is not a guarantee. So all this to say, um, you know, they, they have all these competitive advantages and they're, they're doing one thing and they're doing it well. And that's all great. It's, you know, probably contributed to them getting this FDA breakthrough therapy designation. But the downside to this, of course, is that unlike Mind Medicine, which has a very wide pipeline, and unlike Numi, which has all these different business lines, if Compass fails here, if the FDA does decide to not approve Comp360, well, Compass is kind of fucked. So they'd better hope that the FDA, you know, makes good on, you know, the, all of the goodwill that they've extended to them thus far by issuing the FDA breakthrough therapy designation and actually approves it. Because if not, I don't know that it will kill the company, but it's certainly going to set them back a long time because, you know, they just don't have a wide pipeline. So these are, these are sort of the, the two sides of the, of the coin, you know, diversification can be, um, can be bad. I saw one Reddit user call it diversification where you're just too scattered. But if you do focus too much on one thing and that one thing doesn't work out, well, that's very bad. So, you know, let's, let's hope that this actually does work out for the sake of Compass Pathways and for the sake of all the patients that could potentially benefit from, you know, psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression. But now, now we've talked about this, you know, we've talked about this fact that they are relentlessly focusing on one thing, but let's talk about what that one thing is. What exactly is Comp360? What is this psilocybin-assisted therapy that Compass is working on, okay? So I, I would say that if you had to describe Comp360 Comp um, as quickly as possible, it's really two things. So one, it is a method of manufacture of synthetic psilocybin, high-grade, GMP-certified, extremely pure crystalline psilocybin. This is the psilocybin that they are using in all of their trials and that anyone who actually receives this therapy will end up taking. They're not picking magic mushrooms out of the ground. They're not buying some sort of generic synthetic psilocybin. They have their own manufacturing process, and it is like extremely pure, um, you know, and that's what they're trying to get through. So they have, you know, a patent on that manufacturing process, and it's their special psilocybin. So it's the special psilocybin, and then it is, you know, a therapy training program that T teaches, you know, clinicians or therapists or psychiatrists how to actually administer the psilocybin, how to work with the patient before receiving the psilocybin to prepare them to navigate the psilocybin experience, and then integrating, having an integration session with the patient after the psilocybin experience to help them integrate what they learned during the experience back into their daily life. So it's those two things. It's the drug, and then it's a training program that trains therapists how to administer the drug. So if you had to have like an analogy to Comp360 to something else, I would say it's sort of like, it's almost like Botox, right? Botox is kind of two things. It's the drug Botox, and then it's a trained administrator of it. Now, keep in mind, like Botox, there, there are no official Botox clinics that are owned by the Botox company, right? Botox makes the drug and then it trains any third-party provider how to apply the Botox and how to administer the Botox. And that is really Compass's model here. They are going to train providers and train therapists how to administer this. They are not going to open clinics themselves and administer this. And I think that, you know, that's 
in a way that makes sense because I've spoken at length in my new me and mind med videos about, <clears throat> about how the, the clinic model, while it is necessary, we need clinics. It's not necessarily the best business model because there's very high capital costs. It doesn't scale. You need a lot of people, you need a lot of land. And so I think that it is smart here for Compass to just go with this idea of creating, you know, a brand comp 360, creating a training program and then teaching people how to administer it and then giving them the license to administer it. So I, I think that that is like a reasonable thing for them to do from a business perspective. But that's it. That's what Comp360 is. You know, that's that's really all they're doing. They're not doing testing like Numi. They don't have a gigantic pipeline like MindMed. That's it. But, you know, there, there are, you know, in the background, a few other things that are going on. So they're building these things that they call centers of excellence. And the centers of excellence... They're not clinics, but they are places where clinicians and providers will go to learn how to become Comp360 providers. And they sort of say that in the future, they will use these centers of excellence to run additional clinical trials. So once they've gotten the treatment-resistant depression indication approved, they will maybe run additional trials to get psilocybin approved for, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, you know, ADHD, whatever. And they will use these training centers that they're building to facilitate those clinical trials. And, you know, they, they plan on doing more testing down the line, but I have to emphasize that this is not their major focus. They really are just all in on treatment-resistant depression. So from what I've said so far, you know, I think that it's, it, it's kind of like, wow, they, they're focused on this one thing. They have a team that seems decent. Like, they have this breakthrough therapy designation. What are they worried about? Like, what, what's the downside here? Well, they're very clear about what they worry about. If you read from their uh, management's discussion and analysis, which by the way, is something like 150 pages long. They're worried about a lot of things. Namely, they're worried about competition and they're worried about legalization. So I'm gonna read some little excerpts from their management's discussion and analysis about their concerns about competition and legalization. So first, here's, some, here's an excerpt about competition. They say, quote, we face substantial competition and our competitors may discover, develop, or commercialize therapies before or more successfully than us, which may result in the reduction or elimination of our commercial opportunities. So they're worried that, you know, other people are working on the same things. They say that the pharmaceutical and psychedelic industry is intensely competitive and subject to rapid and significant technological change. Our competitors include multinational pharmaceutical companies, universities, and other research institutions. We also face competition from 501c3 nonprofit medical research organizations, including USONA Institute and MAPS. Such nonprofits may be willing to provide psilocybin-based products at, at cost or for free, undermining our potential market for Comp360. In addition, a number of for-profit biotech companies or institutions are specifically pursuing the development of psilocybin to treat mental health issues, including treatment-resistant depression. In addition, an increasing number of companies are stepping up their efforts in discovery of new psychedelic compounds. It's also probable that the number of companies seeking to develop psychedelic products and therapies for the treatment of mental health illnesses, such as depression, will increase. So, this is not something that's unique to Compass Pathways. I've spoken about this at length in my other videos. The fact is they're looking at molecules that have existed forever. People know about them. They're not inventing new molecules here. And the competition is just going to get more intense as time goes on. You know, it wasn't even two years ago that there were no psychedelic publicly traded companies that 
that even existed. And now there's like 30 of them. So you can only imagine what it's going to look like a year or two from now. And it's great that they have this FDA breakthrough designation, but ultimately that breakthrough designation is only good for psilocybin, which is an existing molecule. And it's great that they have a patented method to produce it, but there are other methods to produce it. And you can also just grow mushrooms and get it. So they may, you know, they may get approved first because of that FDA breakthrough designation, but I don't think that that gives them any sort of long-term economic moat. You know, maybe they have an 18-month, two-year head start at most, but that competition, it's going to get intense. And ultimately, I think it's going to be very hard for them to, you know, fulfill Peter Thiel's vision of a monopoly on the psychedelic market. But they also, they're, they're not just afraid of competition from other companies. They're afraid of legalization. And I, I, I got to kind of pat myself on the back here. I've spoken um, at length in some of my other videos about how we are going to see the CEOs of these for-profit companies speak out against legalization. Now, you might think naively that if someone is the CEO of a company researching psychedelics, they must really like psychedelics and be in favor of legalization. But not so, because obviously like, if it's legal and you can just walk into a dispensary and buy mushrooms just as easily as you can walk into a dispensary and buy marijuana in California where I live, well, why would you go and spend, you know, $1,000 on the pharmaceutical uh, compass pathways psilocybin when you can, you know, spend $75 on some magic mushrooms lo locally and organically grown from your from your local producer? So most of these companies, while they while they won't outright say they're against legalization, they will refuse to speak out in support of it. I've listened to a podcast with J.R. Ron from MindMed, and he was asked point blank multiple times, what do you think about legalization? Are you for it? Are you against it? And his response is just, well, I got to consider the safety and the treatment of my patients. That's, that's what I care about is treating patients. So I don't really have anything to say about legalization. A, not, a total non-answer. And Compass Pathways sort of makes the same statement. They say that, you know, they're focused on treating patients and they don't want to make any real, like, statement for or against legalization. Um, but reading from their management's discussion and analysis, what they say here is they say, despite the current status of psilocybin as Schedule One controlled substances in the United States, there may be changes in the status of psilocybin under laws of certain U.S. cities and states. For instance, the city of Denver voted to decriminalize the possession of psilocybin in 2019, and in Oregon, Measure 109 was passed in November 2020 to pave the way for legal medical use of psilocybin products, including magic mushrooms, to treat mental health conditions in licensed facilities with registered therapists. The legalization of psilocybin could also impact our commercial sales if we receive regulatory approval, as it would reduce the barrier to entry and increase competition. So obviously... If it becomes legal for people to just, you know, grow mushrooms and sell them or for people to make synthetic psilocybin and sell it outside of, you know, a medical setting, I think you'll see a very similar thing that you see in California now, which is there are plenty of people who use marijuana for medical purposes, but they don't necessarily go through the medical marijuana route. They just walk to the dispensary and buy it because oftentimes it's just much easier. There are many more recreational dispensaries than medical ones. Um, so, so they're concerned, you know, they know that competition is heating up and they know that even though they have this kick-ass patent lawyer and they know that even though they have this breakthrough desi therapy designation that, you know, the, they're not secure in their position. They have not established any sort of monopoly and, you know, things could get bad for them. So, so what are they going to do about this? Um, and they, they really have two, two solutions. So one is concern trolling and one of them is patent trolling. And we're going to discuss both. So in case you're familiar with 
or in case you're not familiar with concern trolling, concern trolling is this idea of, you know, acting like you're really concerned for someone when in reality you're trying to like manipulate them to do something or not do something. Um, and in this case, the way that they're concern trolling is what I was just describing in their stances about legalization, right? They, they won't outright say that they're against legalization. They'll just say, well, we're concerned that if um, these things get legalized, that people might not use them safely and that it might actually do um, more harm than good for our patients. So we're just very concerned. And um, I'm going to give some examples of their concern trolling here. So this is actually from their management's discussion and analysis. Again, they say, quote, the legalization of psilocybin without regulatory oversight may lead to the setup of clinics without proper therapeutic infrastructure or adequate clinical research, which could put patients at risk and bring reputational and regulatory risk to the entire industry, making it harder for us to achieve regulatory approval. Now, obviously this is concern trolling. I think that they may have a point in some ways, like if you look at what happened during the first, or the original psychedelic revolution, there were too many people doing psychedelics, people got upset, and they decided that they needed to do something about it and they banned them, right? People, the, the conservative culture didn't like seeing a bunch of hippies, you know, doing acid at Woodstock. And um, so there, there is, and that ended up causing a backlash, which caused, you know, the psychedelic dark age that occurred through, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I think there is kind of a legitimate concern that that could happen again. But this idea that they're sort of speaking out even against this measure in Oregon, which is, if you're not familiar, Measure 109 in Oregon, it was something that was a ballot measure that uh, got voted in on November 3rd, 2020. And this is just the idea that Oregon is going to allow therapists who meet you know, some certain requirements to administer magic mushroom-assisted therapy as long as they you know, do it in some sort of like a, a safe manner. I think they're still trying to work exactly on what those requirements are going to be. But the point is, is that Oregon is just going to let therapists, as long as they meet some reasonable qualifications, do this, do what Compass Pathways has spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get the FDA to allow them to do. Oregon is going outside the FDA and they're using the power of the legislature rather than the power of the regulators to make psilocybin-assisted therapy happen. And Compass just doesn't like that. Um, so, and then an another example of their concern trolling here is, um, you guys may be familiar with Dr. Bronner's, the soap company, right? The all-natural soap that has like millions of words and text on it. Um, by the way, shout out to Dr. Bronner's. I've been using them for a long time. Um, fucking sponsor me, Dr. Bronner's. I'm unemployed. I need money. So if you're, if you're watching, this is where, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be a good spokesperson for you. I promise. Um, Dr. Bronner, um, not him, him himself, but his, great, his grandson, who I think is named Dave Bronner, who is the current CEO of the company. He has been sort of a longtime psychedelic advocate. He's donated tons of money to groups like, I think, MAPS and the other nonprofits that are researching psychedelics. And Dave Bronner, he wrote a blog post just like on March 13th, a couple of days ago. And he says, I have information that um, George Goldsmith, the CEO and co-founder of Compass, recently started reaching out to several psychedelic researchers at Oregon Health and Science University in an attempt to drum up concern, remember that concern trolling word, in an attempt to, to drum up concern and mobilize opposition to implementing 109 in Oregon. Compass makes no bones about their opposition to Measure 109 and their intent to keep psilocybin therapy within the FDA medical pharma frame only. From their position statement, should psilocybin be legalized, which is on their website, um, they quote, they want to make sure that it is safe and effective in patients. And in order to do that, psilocybin therapy needs to be approved by medical regulators, not by legislators, which is what I just said that they were going to do. So, you know, we've got this battle between the, the soap king, Dr. Bronner, 
and George Goldsmith, the CEO of Compass. And they're yelling at each other about, you know, why is Compass like sending out emails to these professors and trying to get them to like protest the um, application and the, the actual implementation of this Measure 109 in Oregon? Uh, he goes on to say, while I have confidence in the researchers I know at OHSU, I'm concerned that others elsewhere may take the bait, and soon we may see Compass-funded researchers publishing articles, op-eds, or otherwise trying to mobilize the scientific community and public at large, and ultimately federal regulators, to oppose implementation of Measure 109. Having supposedly independent academic researchers on your payroll or on your under your influence, acting as proxies for industry interests, is a tried and true playbook of Big Pharma perfected long ago. Pretty damning words from the Soap King. And, um, you know, I think that uh, this is a, th th this, this battle between sort of the nonprofit people, the legalization people, and the pharmaceutical people is something that has happened, you know, kind of for, for a long time. Th these organizations like MAPS and uh, I think it's Ursona, which are nonprofits. MAPS has been going for 35 years. Usona or Us Us Usona, Ursona, I forget how you pronounce it. They've been at it for, I believe, at least a decade. And they see these new for-profit companies just kind of coming out of nowhere. And they're like, what the fuck, man? Like we've been, we've been spending 30 years trying to get these things approved, you know, in a nice ethical nonprofit way. And you're coming in here with your Peter Thiel money and you're trying to like charge people a ton of money and, you know, make big profits. Like what the fuck? This is fucked up. And, um, you know, th there's a battle going on and, um, we, we can see that, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's real. I mean, people are posting blog posts and having Twitter wars about this. Um, I'm not going to get too much into this because I could do a whole episode just about the Twitter wars between people like Tim Ferriss, who's been a longtime supporter of uh, MAPS, and people like Christian Angermeyer, who's the CEO and founder of Atai Life Sciences. I mean, people are like going on LinkedIn and writing long blogs, people are yelling at each other on Twitter. It's pretty vicious. Um, but so, so that's the concern trolling side of it. And then on the other side, they, we have the patents. And this is where we go back to um, their chief litigate, chief legal officer, who I remember I said has like that chemistry background and has spent a whole career um, being a patent attorney on behalf of pharma companies. So what is this guy up to? Now, <clears throat> there's a lot to say about Compass Pathways patent scandals and the things that they're trying to patent. But um Man, so much has been written about it. I feel like I can't really add a whole lot to the conversations. Um, there's a big Vice article that you can easily Google. Just Google Vice Compass and you can read all about the things that they're trying to patent. Um, just to give you like a three-sentence rundown, I mean, people are basically pissed off because Compass is not just patenting their method of manufacture of psilocybin. They're trying to patent the entire therapeutic process. And as they're trying to patent that therapeutic process, they're including things in the patent application like the room has soft furniture. The room is painted with muted colors. The room has a good sound system. The room has a bed or a couch. And, you know, the implication here is that they're going to get all of these things, which, by the way, people that have been doing psychedelics have been doing since the beginning of time, since it's like so obvious when you're under the influence, you don't want to be on hard furniture with 
you know, with a bad sound system. So th these are things that are obvious and like probably every therapist that has ever used or would consider using psychedelics would do these things and Compass is trying to patent them. And obviously, like you can imagine when Vice saw this in the patent application, they went fucking ballistic, wrote this article and tons of people are like rage sharing it on Twitter and they're very upset. And I mean, I'm pretty upset too. It's pretty, it's pretty fucking ridiculous that they're patenting this. But what I will say is that the truth is, is that patents that get filed do not get approved in their entirety. In fact, it's a very common practice for a company that is trying to seek intellectual property protection on anything through the patent system to put as many details as they possibly can in the patent application. And then the patent office sort of sends it back and they just have crossed out a bunch of things that are not unique enough. But the things that have not been crossed out do get to be patented. So it's not unusual for companies to just sort of like over-patent uh, with the expectation that most of these things will not be granted and will not be found patentable. So I think that while that article is pretty rage-inducing, and when you hear about someone trying to patent soft furniture colors and a good pair of headphones, it does make you say, you know, what the fuck? But the truth is, is I, I just have a hard time believing that these patents will get approved. And if they do get approved, um, we can sort of take some solace in the fact that Usona, which is sort of like maps, but focused on psilocybin, they're a nonprofit that is backed by um, this very wealthy guy who has a lot of resources. Um, they have hired, a pat I think, multiple patent attorneys to create what they call a anti-intellectual property task force that is going to, you know, counteract any of this monopolistic rent-seeking behavior in the psychedelic space. So it's not as if Compass is running around unchecked doing this, right? They have to get through the patent office, which so far they haven't, they've only filed. And then there are all these nonprofits and institutions that actually have money and resources to deploy against the enforcement of these patents. So as distasteful as it may be, um, you know, rest assured that maybe some of these patents will actually not get approved. And if they are approved, they may be very difficult to enforce. But just, just to wrap this um, patent section up, you know, what is it? What do I think about it? What can I really add to the conversation? Well, I think one thing that's important to remember is that if you're, if you're watching this video, most of my other videos have been about like psychedelic from the investment perspective. And so I'm assuming that you're watching this not just because you want to understand Compass Pathways for fun, but because you're considering investing in the stock, or maybe you already have invested in the stock. And I think that, you know, this is the kind of thing where you just have to like say, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. I mean, these practices that they're engaging in are pretty gross, especially if you're someone who recognizes the fact that, you know, psilocybin is a naturally occurring substance and like people have been using it forever. It's pretty gross to see someone try to patent it. But as an investor, especially if you're an investor like Peter Thiel, who believes that all great companies are at their heart monopolies, this is exactly what you should want the company to do. Maybe you don't agree with it morally, but maybe it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But if they're doing this, it gives them a greater chance of actually, you know, making money in the long run. And um, I think people, especially new investors, have a hard time separating, you know, the moral and the things that they like from the things that necessarily make money. And, you know, I, I will say to anyone that's sort of a new investor, you, you kind of have to learn how to separate those things and you have to learn how to hold two conflicting ideas in your head at the same time, you know? But the, the, the point is, is that, you know, while these practices are distasteful, I think that they are exactly what you would want to see a company do 
in order to, you know, become a monopoly, which like Peter Thiel says, is the best way to make sure that you have like a long, defensible, profitable position, which is what you should want to invest in if you're trying to maximize, you know, your, pro your investing profits, which I know a lot of you Reddit Wall Street bettors are. So that's my advice on that in terms of how to think about it. Um, you know, my, in some ways it's funny, Compass is like the largest company by market cap, but they kind of in, in a weird way have like the least number of things going on. So while I could talk forever about Numi because they have like a million lines of business and I could talk forever about uh, MindMed because they have all these things in the pipeline, there aren't a lot of things to talk about with Compass. Like they're very simple. They're just focusing on that one thing. So I don't have a lot more to talk about, but I did, you know, I, I read through most of their management's discussion and analysis, and I found a couple of little excerpts that might be kind of interesting. And I just kind of want to read them here and I'll leave some comments on them. So the first thing is about the need for clinics. And I, I've mentioned in my other videos that, you know, clinics are a bad business model because they don't scale, but it's totally essential, right? Like all of these therapies that might get approved by the FDA, are much more than just the drug. It's taking the drug in concert with with a um, with a therapist, and so you need some sort of clinic to do this in. And they say here, they say that we need the clinics. They say even if we obtain regulatory approval for Comp 360, we will still need to develop a commercial infrastructure or develop relationships with collaborators to commercialize, including securing availability of third-party therapy sites for the appropriate administration of our investigational Comp 360 psilocybin therapy. One of the other things that they mention when they're talking about these clinics, I, I actually forgot to get the quote, but I, I remember they were saying that um, there, there's something, I believe it's called an REM, which has something to do with um, like security requirements for facilities that handle certain drugs. And so it's like, it's, it's one thing to just be a regular doctor's office, right? But if you deal in like certain types of drugs, maybe something like ketamine or something that's scheduled two, then you can't just have a regular doctor's office, right? You probably have to meet like some security requirements. You might need to have like certain amounts of like life-saving equipment on site, that sort of thing. And they talk about how it is very likely that when the FDA um, issues an approval for psilocybin-assisted therapy, they may make a stipulation that any clinics that are administering this therapy have these, I, I forget if it was RME or REM, I, 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 I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, they may issue one of these REM mandates along with that approval, which means that the clinics might even be more expensive than we thought. It may not be enough to just get a soft room with muted colors and a couch and a pair of headphones. It may be that they have to have like some kind of significant medical technology on staff in case of a trip gone bad. It may be that they have to have certain secure physical security measures in place to make sure that people don't rob them and steal the psilocybin. So it may be very, very expensive to find clinics that, you know, are, or to build clinics or to find clinics that maybe want this, but don't have those measures. And, um, yeah, Compass is just very concerned about the profitability of the clinic model, even though they're not actually themselves in the clinic model. They think it's going to be very difficult to find clinical partners. And, and I think that that is something that we should apply in our minds to any business that is operating in the psychedelic clinic space. Um, another thing that they mention is pricing. So they talk about how the success... I'm just going to read the quote. So they say, the successful commercialization of our investigational COMP360 psilocybin therapy or any future therapeutic candidates will depend in part on the extent to which governmental authorities and health insurers establish adequate reimbursement levels and pricing policies. So it's like, this is just another thing to think about. It's, it's not enough that the FDA approves it. It's like, is this thing going to be expensive? Hint, yes, it will, because we're talking about 
therapy therapies that last all day that need to be under the constant supervision of someone that makes upwards of a hundred dollars an hour in, you know, some kind of like prime retail space. So we're talking probably thousands of dollars for one of these sessions. And it's like, if it gets approved, that's great. But if no one's willing to pay for it, if insurance companies won't cover it, we're kind of fucked. Um, they say certain patients may need repeated treatments over their lifetime to avoid relapse. You know, it may not be enough to just do one psychedelic trip and then you're set for life. You may have to come back once a year, once every 18 months. And it says this may increase treatment costs, making it more difficult for us to secure reimbursement from insurance companies. Even if we obtain coverage for a given therapy by third-party payers, the resulting reimbursement payout rates may not be adequate or may require patient out-of-pocket costs that patients find unacceptably high. So maybe this therapy costs 10 grand and the insurers will cover seven grand, but a person may not have three grand to pay the remaining out-of-pocket cost. Um, it says that third-party payers are increasingly challenging prices charged for therapeutic substances and services, and many third-party payers may refuse to provide coverage and reimbursement for particular drugs when an equivalent generic drug or a less expensive therapy is available. So they're saying that like a lot of insurance companies, they're not going to reimburse you for getting the brand name drug, right? You got to get the generic drug. You, you can't get that big brand name that advertises to you on TV. And so Compass's concern here is that let's say Comp360 gets approved, but maybe there's a psychiatrist willing to use it off-label, or maybe you live in Oregon where there's a Measure 109 approved therapist that's doing it. The, ther the, the insurance company may not pay for the Compass treatment, but it will pay for an equivalent treatment, which is, you know, done much cheaper. And that would certainly hurt Compass, right? Um, it says that, oh, and in terms of estimating the price, so I found an article from an analyst named Esther Hong. She is a biopharma analyst for Berenberg Securities Group. She believes, now, she doesn't really say how she found this out. And um, I will say that I researched very heavily to see if I could find anyone from within Compass talk about what this treatment is actually going to cost. And I couldn't find it. They're being very tight-lipped. Tight they don't want to say any hard facts and figures so, so far. But she says, Esther Hong, the securities analyst, believes that Comp360 could generate $2.7 billion in sales by 2032. Um, she assumes an annual price of not $1,000 or $5,000. She assumes an annual price of $22,000 per patient with a 6% annual increase. Now, what's funny about this is that she compares this to Johnson & Johnson's, sorry, I think it's Jason's esketamine, which I did not know this, supposedly costs between $33,000 and $49,000. So she's like, yeah, this uh, Compass 360 psilocybin's pretty cheap. It's only, it's only $22,000, you know, compare that to, uh, Jason, which is 33,000 or 49,000. Um, now obviously this is enough to make you insane. If you're someone who's been around psychedelics, you know that you can get a hold of enough ketamine or mushrooms to blow your brains out for less than a hundred dollars. And you know, it, in my mind, it's like, okay, I can see using pharma grade psilocybin under the care of a professional in a nice office for, you know, maybe a thousand, maybe $2,000, but, but $20,000. I mean, 
what I mean, seriously, what the fuck? And and I, I, I when you read the more things like this, you read the more you can sympathize with the people who are anti these pharma companies and just really want psychedelics to be decriminalized and legalized. Um, I will say that you know when I started making these videos and when I started investing in psilocybin, I didn't really have an opinion. I hadn't really studied the matter very closely. Um, and I just kind of thought it was cool that companies were researching this stuff and I was excited to invest and I'm still excited to invest. But the more I researched, the more kind of grossed out by the behaviors of these companies, not just Compass, but the other pharma companies that are in here. Um, you know, I'm kind of grossed out by how they're behaving because, uh, you know, you just think about the fact that most of these substances have been around forever. Um, they were legal at one point, the government made them illegal, and now they're sort of trying to sell them back to us for, you know, a thousand times what they actually cost. It's 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 enough to make you sick if you think about it too hard. Um, so I, I am very much, in a weird way, like I kind of don't want the decriminalization efforts to succeed because I want my investments to grow. But I also, at the same time, want to see, you know, decriminalization and legalization happen so that I can watch these pharma companies that are trying to charge $20,000 to do psilocybin get totally fucked because fuck them, honestly. Um, just kidding. Maybe not. Maybe not kidding. So, you know, at the end of the day, what do I think about Compass? You know, the, the, the question is, do we buy Compass? Do we not? And uh, I think in summary of everything I said, I think it's very likely that Compass... Comp360 therapy is probably going to get approved. I mean, they are fast-tracked and they're the only for-profit pharma company with a fast-track designation. There is one other organization that has a fast-track on psilocybin. They're a nonprofit. And I think that the fact that there are two fast-track designations for, for psilocybin means that, you know, the FDA probably wants to approve this. It, the, I think it's at the stage where they're looking they're just kind of saying, as long as you don't give us a reason to not approve it, we're going to approve it. So I think that they're going to get approved. I think that they probably won't be able to defend most of their patents. I think the competition will be stiff. I mean, as we said, we got competition for other pharma companies. We got pharma, uh, competition from nonprofits. And we have competition from the, from the uh, legalization and decriminalization crowd. And so, you know, because of those reasons, like, I think they will make money, but they're going to face stiff competition. And so I don't think they're going to end up being, you know, one of Peter Thiel's ideal monopolies. I think in, in more practical terms, what they're going to be is just, they're going to have the cash flows of a typical biopharma company, which is they lose money for a couple of years while they're developing the therapy. They make pretty good money for, you know, maybe the first three to five years after it gets approved. And then after those three to five years, competition heats up, generics come on the market and, you know, their cash flows trail back to zero over the next 20 years. And I think that if you wanted to ask me what's the most likely outcome for Compass, I think that's it. And by the way, that's kind of what the most likely outcome for most of these companies is. I know a lot of people that are into MindMed think that MindMed is going to be, you know, just this, this massive success that no one will be able to touch because JR is so cool and they're working on so many things. And it, MindMed is a cool company, but the fact you cannot ignore the insane amount of competition that is coming to this area. And so for that reason, I don't think that any company is going to become, an, become a monopoly in the psychedelic space. So when you're an investor, um, in, some, in some fields, like with tech, the question really is picking which companies are going to be monopolies and which companies are not. I think in the psychedelic space, it's more like there are no monopolies. So the only question is which companies are going to 
like succeed in some way and differentiate them from the companies that are, you know, kind of scams. Because let's be real, there are a lot of people getting into the sector for the wrong reasons that really have nothing. Um, there, there's a lot of like scammy weed stocks-esque behavior in the sector. So the real question for investors is which companies are real and which ones are you know, scams. And as long as you don't pick the scams, and if you have a nice diversified basket of the ones that are real, I think all of the ones that are real are going to probably win in some in some reasonable way. Um, so, you know, ultimately, I think that if you believe in the psychedelic space, which if you're watching this video, I assume you do, and you think that the psychedelic space is going to be a real thing over the next 10 years, should you buy Compass or not? Yeah, I think you can't afford to not buy some Compass. Um, I don't think you should go all in on Compass. I think you should have a nice diversified basket of, of quality psychedelic stocks. I think Compass is a quality psychedelic stock. I mean, they have a solid team. They have something with FDA breakthrough designation. Maybe their pipeline's a little narrow, but that's okay. You know, they, they've talked about how they're going to expand once this gets approved. And like it or not, love it or hate it, they're playing the game. I mean, they're they're ready to go to court. They're going to try and, you know, create that monopoly um, <laughs> any way they can. And you may not like that, but that is the way that, you know, the business world, especially in the pharma world, works. It's all about patents. It's all about intellectual property. And it's just about trying to get the patent office to approve as much as you can. And Compass, they're playing the game better than anyone else's. So I think that gives them a good shot at, you know, being successful. Like I said, I don't think that they're going to be able to totally dominate the space because as corrupt as the patent system is, I just don't see them issuing those patents for things like um, quiet rooms with cool music and nice muted colors because those patents would in effect outlaw any sort of any other therapy, which I think, you know, it's just not going to happen. So I think that you know, Compass has a good shot at being a reasonably successful company over the next 10 years. And if you're a believer in the psychedelic space, you can't afford not to hold them. So that's it, guys. That That's the end of this video. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Um, if you liked this video, please, you know, smash that like button, as they say, and, um, you know, subscribe to the channel. It, it's, uh, it's very encouraging to me as someone, as someone who has not really been like in online guy. You know, I'm, I'm 30 years old and I've never really built a following on any platform. Um, it's been very cool to see so many people subscribe to the channel in such a short amount of time. I know that, you know, a couple hundred subscribers is really nothing in the grand scheme of things of YouTube. But for me, it's been kind of a big deal to, to see. It's, been, it's made me very happy. So thank you guys so much. Um, I like debating people in the comments. And so if you have, you know, if you want to just leave a comment that tells me how great I am. That's nice. But I really appreciate the comments where people, you know, challenge me on the things that I say in these videos as, you know, as long as they're made in good faith, I appreciate that. So, um, you know, hit, hit me up on the comment section. I'm active on Reddit Shroomstocks and the Shroomstocks Discord server. So you can talk to me there. Uh, let's have a debate. Let's figure this thing out. And um, I look forward to speaking with you guys. All right. Until next time. Thanks.